0: We continue our summer series on evangelism, and I hope in the past few weeks as you've listened to the message that you have thought about this subject and thought about sharing your faith, and I hope that you have learned more about the importance of it, as if you needed to be reminded of it, because we're all painfully aware how few Christians there are, how many people really need to hear about the gospel of Christ. Many of the sermons that I've chosen for the series I've taken out of the book of Acts. And in the first chapter, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts is... All about the disciples' faithfulness to carry out that command. See, Jesus had a plan for the growth of the church, and his plan was that all believers would be turned into witnesses for him. This is how the gospel is taken out. And because those first disciples were very faithful to that commission that Christ gave, we have the gospel with us today. Now, we we don't know when Jesus is going to return. If he delays his coming, then there's always going to be another generation that needs to hear about the gospel of Christ. And unless we are faithful to be his witnesses, unless we are as faithful as the disciples were, then this new generation, succeeding generations, will not be able to hear of the redemption that we have in Christ. Now this week and next week, we're going to study here in the third chapter of Acts. And tonight we're going to look at the first 11 verses. Next week, we'll come back to it and look at verses 12 through 26, but it's not really a two-part sermon. I'm going to preach two different sermons. The themes are similar, of course. Uh, This week, it's witnessing for a miracle, and although there was a physical miracle that we find in this chapter, there was also uh, the greatest miracle of all, which is the new birth. And next week, when we look at the next part of it, we'll, we'll take a look at Peter's sermon, and look at the doctrines that need to be on your mind when you talk to people about the Lord. And you may not be able to explain all of them fully, but they are all part and parcel of the gospel of Christ. And uh, I'm going to identify for you at least ten doctrines that Peter preached on in those next verses, and we'll take a look at that next week. But if you'll look at our text verses now, uh, chapter 3, beginning at verse number 1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, "'Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk.' And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with him into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God.' And all the people saw him walking and praising God and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple and they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. In Acts chapter 2, there is the ...story of the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. There are many people who believe that Pentecost was the day of the beginning of the church. Uh, I don't personally believe that. I believe that the church began during Christ's personal ministry, that he began it with his 12 apostles. But I do believe that Pentecost is the time of the empowering of the church... And after the Holy Spirit fell on the church on that day, Peter preached a powerful message in which there were 3,000 people that were saved. And so in that one day, there were 3,000 people added to the 120 that were already in the church. And so in one day, the church grew from 120 to 3,120 And you can just uh, imagine the excitement that that must have caused. Uh, People were charged up about it, just really excited about what God could do through the preaching of the gospel. And it shows us the explosive content of the gospel, how it's able to change lives and bring people to Jesus Christ. Well, we come here to the third chapter, and this is the first miracle of the church that's recorded after Pentecost. And this was not to be an an isolated occurrence because these people were so on fire for God that they saw miracles happen almost on a daily basis. These are people that saw what God could do. They were set on fire. They knew how lives could be changed. And so that put within them a desire that everyone that they came in contact with would know about their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like for us to look at this miracle and and just learn some lessons here about witnessing to others. My first thought is that witnessing requires consultation. Now, in the first verse of chapter 3, we find Peter and John headed to the temple at the ninth hour of the day. Now, that would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon since the Jewish day started at 6 a.m. And you'll notice that the text says here that it was at the hour of prayer. And the Jews had three specific times for prayer. They prayed at the third hour, that was 9 o'clock. They prayed at the sixth hour, which was 12 o'clock noon. And they prayed at the ninth hour, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So Peter and John went to the temple at the prayer time. And there were always crowds that were gathered around the temple at that particular time. And Peter and John, being men of great prayer, went there. And you'll notice as you read through Acts, if you pay close attention, you'll see that there are significant things that happen at the prayer times. When the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, it was the third hour of the day, or it was at the prayer time. In the 10th chapter of Acts, when Peter saw that vision that God gave him to go and speak to Cornelius, that happened at the sixth hour, which was the prayer time. There was an angel that appeared to Cornelius and told him to send for Peter, and that was at the ninth hour, which was the prayer time. And so here we see in the the third chapter that there is a miracle that occurs here at the hour of prayer. And so I think that the fact that Peter and John went to the temple at the prayer time does show us that they were men of prayer. They believed in having set times that they would pray to God, not not just praying as they dashed about about their business and uh, running about and praying just whenever they could, and not just praying because the Scripture also says that we're constantly to be in an attitude of prayer so that we can go to God at any time that we want. We need to be aware of that. But here we see there was a regular practice of having a prayer time, just a special time set aside to just go to God, perhaps even getting away from the world and consulting with God about what they needed. And so their prayer lives made them men that had great power with God. And not coincidentally, prayer is a key factor when it comes to witnessing. If we want to see lives changed, then we have to be people of prayer And I know there are some who think that prayer is just a useless duty, that things are going to happen the way that they happen because we have a sovereign God who's in control of everything, that there's no need for us to pray because he's worked things out and they'll just happen as they happen. And so they have the feeling that prayer is practically meaningless. But we look at the way that the apostles spent their time in prayer, and we learn that prayer is not meaningless. We learn that prayer is a means That prayer is one of God's means of bringing about his will. People have often said, and we hear it in the church here all the time because of our Wednesday night prayer service and having the prayer page and all of that, lots of times people will say that prayer works. And I really do believe that prayer works because that is one of God's appointed means to accomplish his work. And I'll let others figure out how God does that and how that fits in with his sovereignty I just know this, that it's one of the things that God has commanded, and we do this because God commands that we ought to do it. So Peter and John went to pray, and I believe that they were expecting that God would do something at the hour of prayer. And just like those many other cases that I mentioned in Acts, God was about to do something. Something would happen at this prayer time, because this is where they met a man who had a great need. Now, we notice, secondly, that in witnessing, witnessing requires compassion. Verse number 2 tells us they met the man in great need. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. So near to the gate of the temple, as Peter and John went in, there was this man that was lame, It tells us here that from his birth he was crippled. He had to be carried everywhere. His wasn't a pretend illness. Everyone that knew him was well acquainted with his problem. And so he was a person with a genuine need. And he was placed near the temple gate to beg for money from those that passed by. Now We remember that there were no welfare programs in the, the days of the apostles. There were no social agencies that people could go to help. And so the practice for the needy, the practice for those that were poor, was to go to the public places. And there, many people would pass by and they would beg for handouts. And if someone was disabled, then their relatives or their friends would bring them to these public places. They'd lay them down at the temple or at the gate of the city where crowds would pass sometimes they would put them down at the gate or the fence of a rich man and that's what happened in the story of the rich man and Lazarus so the poor and the beggars the blind and the lame were laid at the gate just waiting there for someone to come along who had the compassion to help them and so this is how Peter and John found this man he's a cripple he's lying at the temple gate he has no one to help him and to take care of him Now, I want to show you how that compassion figures into our witnessing. First of all, we notice that Jesus works when you sympathize with the suffering. One of the things that we always need to be aware of is that Jesus works through his disciples. God is not ordained for his work to be done apart from or without his people. God ordains his work to be done through us. Now, you've heard this said many times before, I'm sure, that what God uses to do his work are our hands, that our hands become his hands, that our feet become his feet. The voice that we use for witnessing become his voice. And that's okay, but we don't want to get confused about it, is that all the power to do those things, what we do with our hands, where we go with our feet, what we say with our voices, all of that belongs within the scope of the power of God. And so we have to lend all of that to him for him to use and never think that we do this on our own. But it's for sure that people are not touched and lives are not changed unless God's people are active to do his work. Compassion is needed for what we do. We need to sympathize with those that are suffering. Now I think as Christians we ought to sympathize with those that are physically suffering, but our... A message here is not so much dealing with that type of compassion. The greater sympathy that we need to have, the greater compassion that we need, is for those that have the spiritual need. See, people are suffering. The lost are, are, are suffering in their sins, and the greatest tragedy they, they experience is not the loss of their ability to work, the, not, the loss of the ability to walk, not the loss of the ability to see, or to hear not physically debilitating diseases, that's not the worst thing that they face. For every person without Christ, the worst thing that they face is to be lost and to die in that condition. So what God expects from his people is not only to sympathize with people that have never believed in Christ, but also to agonize over it, to agonize over the suffering and neglect of people that don't know the Lord. So this man was a helpless cripple. He was unable to work. He was a misfit as far as society was concerned. And he suffered from neglect from those who should have been the most compassionate people of all. Those were the Jews. But the Jews weren't motivated to help people from a compassionate heart. They were supposed to be the people of God, but it wasn't a compassionate heart that drove them. Instead, rather, they wanted to soothe their consciences when they helped someone, or, as Jesus said, they gave alms to be noticed. They wanted men to applaud them. And so here was a man suffering from neglect from those that said that they were God's people. Well, what we'll often do is we criticize the Jews for their lack of compassion in their religion, but we need to look at ourselves and see how much that we are guilty And that's because there are people that are suffering from neglect. And we are people that know more about compassion than anyone else knows. And you say, well, how is that? How how is it that we know compassion better? Well, because we're the ones who have received the mercy and the love and the grace of God. That God in his compassion sent Jesus Christ to us. And when we were helpless and we couldn't do anything for ourselves, God came to us when we couldn't come to him. So Jesus begins to work when his people start to recognize the suffering of those that are lost in sin. Then Jesus works when you focus on the need. See, it's not enough just to acknowledge the desperate need that people have. We need to zero in on that need. Now verse 3 says that this man saw Peter and John about to enter into the temple and on his mind was to ask for alms. Verse 4 says, And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. So here is a man that had captured Peter's attention. Peter focused on him and what he specifically needed. And the phrase here is fastening his eyes. That means to fix the attention, an earnest and intense gaze, continuous, steadfast attention. Now the crippled man was accustomed to seeing many people that passed by. I'm sure that he scarcely even looked up to those that spoke to him. They scarcely even noticed him. And perhaps he had spoken to hundreds of people on a daily basis, just hoping that there would be a few as they passed by, that they would leave him something. And he wasn't the only one that was there. We're talking about competition. Many of the beggars, all, the beggars came to the public places, and all of them are vying for the attention of the wealthy. And even those that, that saw him really paid no attention as they might have thrown a few coins into his cup or into his lap. But this is not the way it was with Peter and John. Peter fastened his eyes on him. They paid attention to the need. And at that moment, this man became the most important person in the world to them. And so Peter also demanded his attention. He asked the man to pay attention to them. And he said, look on us. Now, Peter wanted his undivided attention because what he was about to say were the most important words that this man could ever hear. What they were about to say was so important that it needed to be heard very clearly. This man didn't need to miss one word about what Peter was going to say. And let me say this to you. I think it's important that we say it here, that when God's word is preached from the pulpit, this is the most important thing that happens in this church People need to sit up and pay attention. You need to fix your attention on me—not not that I'm anyone to look at—but fix your attention on what's being said. Sit up, pay attention, young people. And I don't think we have our young people are much better than most. So we don't see them passing notes and things like that. Adults shouldn't do that either. And I'll—and I I'll tell you something else. Adults should not be doing is sitting there while the preaching of the word of God is going on and checking cell phones for scores and looking at all the things on the internet that you can get on a cell phone while the preaching of God is going on folks there is nothing that is more important than the preaching of God's word and so Peter was not going to let this man think about anything else than what he was about to tell him so he's focused on the man's need And let me just mention this. I'll back up just a little bit on, just again, about preaching the Word of God in the church. It is so important that people really ought not to get up and leave the services unless it's really an emergency to go. Don't distract people from hearing the Word of God. That's one of the ways that Satan uses to snatch the Word out of the heart. And that is, people, while the Word of God is being preached, somebody gets up and just walks out when they don't really need to go. You ought to be sitting and listening to the Word of God because that's the most important thing, and make sure you don't disturb others. Now, thirdly, Jesus works when you meet the need. So it's not enough to see the need. It's not enough to focus on the need. Something has to be done about it. So Peter acted. He did something that was dramatic here. And he was a man who believed that he was the Lord's man for others that were in need. He was going to be the hands and he would be the feet. He would be the voice of the Lord. And he would be the one that has to show the compassion of the Lord for others. And you need to be aware of that. Your testimony is a testimony of the Lord. If you claim to be a Christian, your testimony speaks of him. And so God's people need to be compassionate people. We need to care about others because that's the way the Lord was and we're to be people just like he was. So Peter looked at him. He focused on him and Peter stirred expectancy in him when he said, look on us. And I'm sure that that man thought, well, Peter wants me to look up because he has something to give me. Peter has money to give me. Well, Peter's words reveal some things to us that you need to think about. Let me just give you four quick thoughts about this, and and I'm not going to labor this. You just need to, to jot these down very quickly. As Peter witnessed, he had confidence that he belonged to God and that he was God's witness. He had a plan to help the man. Thirdly, he expected that God would help him to meet the man's need. And then fourthly, He was willing to reach out by faith and meet that need. So here is Peter, the one who is the ready, prepared messenger for Christ. He's the one who's going to reach out in the power of God. And this is what we need to do. We need to be confident that we belong to God. We need to speak the truth that God has given to us to speak. And when we speak it, we need to expect that God will help us to reach people. And we need to have the faith in our own hearts that God can do for others exactly what he did for us. And it all begins with being willing to be the messenger for God. And so this is not a time to be doubtful. Not a time to think, well, I wonder if God can really do this. Can this person really be saved? Think about what Paul says in First Corinthians 6. He said, "'Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God.'" In verse 11, he says, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, Paul gives us a list there to show us that no matter how wicked, no matter how vile that sinners are, that God can change them. He makes us a new creation in Christ. So we ought not to be timid about the gospel. If it changed you then it can change everybody change everybody around you so what we need to do is we must consult God in prayer and we need to be compassionate for people now thirdly then witnessing requires the cure what is the cure? well we all know it don't we? the cure is the gospel this man was needy but he wasn't yet fully aware of what that greatest need was this man concentrated on the physical disability and so what Peter said he was not expecting to hear. If you look at verse number 5, And he gave heed unto them, or the man listened to them, expecting to receive something from them. So Peter says, look on us. And this man expected, by all the attention that he was getting, that these two fellows, Peter and John, were about to lay a big donation on him. And I can imagine with him paying so much attention to him and, and uh, speaking specifically to him and asking him to look up that he his, his spirits were lifted and he's thinking, boy, now here it comes. Now I'm ready to receive something like I've never received before. Money is what he had on his mind. But look at verse 6. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none. Now that's like a... Pin pricking a balloon right there because I think his heart probably fell to the sidewalk. No silver, no gold. You mean this guy has a lecture for me? The last thing that I need is for someone to give me a warm and fuzzy and then walk away. And I'm sure that there have been many of the people that walked by him that had lectures for him and had nothing to give him. James wrote that when you see a person in need and you say to them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? And I'm sure that's what the man thought. What does it profit? Silver and gold have I none? Then what do you have to give me? What does it profit? And so uh, he thought they were all talk and no show. Well, let me pause in the story here just a moment just to tell you that or to look at it from another perspective, that it's really the world that doesn't grasp the things that are of real value. We get phone calls and letters from people all of the time that are looking for for handouts. If I were to compare the number of contacts that we have of people that are looking for money as opposed to those that may call the church and ask for spiritual help, I would say money calls outnumber the spiritual help calls about 20 to 1 or even greater than that. And almost all of those, this is almost always the case, that people, when they come in looking for money, they turn a deaf ear when you begin to talk to them about their need for Jesus. I had a man in my office some time ago, and he told me about his need for money. And it's always my practice when somebody gets that far to get into the office where... I can sit down and talk with them that the first thing that i do i say let's let 's set aside let 's set aside for just a moment what you 're asking me for let 's set aside that for just a moment and let 's talk about your soul and I without fail, when I get a person in there, I want to talk to them about the gospel. but I had a man in the office that I had never met anyone that so clearly articulated his intent. Because he said to me when I began to talk to him about the Lord, don't give me any of the Jesus stuff. I need money. So the last thing he wanted to hear was silver and gold, have I none? Well, the real need for the soul is the salvation that we have in Christ. This crippled man had a spiritual need, so he probably fought. Peter and John are all talk. But listen to the next part of that verse. But such as I have, Peter said, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So they had a cure for him. This is better than silver or gold. They were giving him something that money could not buy, far more than he expected. Something that there was no way that he could ever pay for, nothing that he could ever expect to get from anyone else. They were about to give him a cure, not only for his crippled feet and his legs, but for his soul. Now, as we look at that man, I think that he provides for us several illustrations of what it means to receive the cure that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing that we notice about it is that every person needs the cure. I mean, there, there is no one that doesn't need this. Verse 7 says, And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And that is an excellent illustration of how that salvation comes to us, that salvation is a gift of God. And it's a gift, actually, did you know this? It's actually a gift of God that we are unable to recognize and unable to receive. Peter said to this man, Rise up and walk but this is a man that's crippled how's he going to do that it's impossible for him to obey that command and God tells sinners to repent and believe he commands it and yet it's impossible for us to obey that command you see just like this crippled man we are incapacitated now he had a physical disability physically incapacitated but every person without Jesus Christ is spiritually incapacitated we're totally depraved, dead in trespass and sin, totally unable to help ourselves. And yet God says to us, he commands us to repent and believe. And that ability, or inability I should say, the inability to obey that command does not actually negate the command. Look what Peter did. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. Peter commanded him to stand up, but then Peter lifted Hooking by the right hand and lifted him up. And so Peter's the one who took the initiative to help that man to get up. And folks, that is the way that God works in salvation. God takes the initiative. Or if you want to put it this way, God is the one who takes the first step. He uses the gospel presentation that we give to people and he takes that and applies it to the heart and he enables a person to repent and believe. As long as we're dead in sin, we can't reach up to God. And so what God does, he makes sure that we come alive in order to believe. And that's what the Bible calls the quickening power of God. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. And there, quickening quickening is equivalent to regeneration. And so in regeneration, God brings a sinner to life, and then he's willing to believe. And so can you imagine that Peter would say to this man, Rise up and walk. And that man would look at him and he would say, No, no, I don't think so. I don't want to walk. What do you mean coming here to the temple gate and telling me to rise up and walk? I don't want to get up and walk. Well, of course he was willing to walk. And this is what happens when God regenerates and begins to work in the heart. That's when the person becomes willing. And at the same time that the person begins to br- or God brings that person to life, it's the very same moment, in that same moment, that the person says, yes, I will repent of my sins. Yes, I will trust, I will believe that Jesus died to save me from my sins. So we quoted, quoted last week, the psalmist said, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. And so the apostles were willing to go when the power of God rested on them. They were willing to witness when they knew that God was their help and God had to be behind it and God's power has to be in it. And then the lost sinner, when he hears the message of Christ, becomes willing when the Holy Spirit quickens him and enables him to repent and believe. And so that's why we preach that witnessing always depends upon God's power it's why last week in the in the message, I, I said that we could never expect that we could convince anybody to be saved. We can't argue people into it. God has to convict their heart. See, Peter couldn't convince this man to get up and walk. He could talk all day about the virtues of being able to walk and how great that it is, but that wouldn't have helped the man at all. Not unless this man had God's power to Regenerate those atrophied muscles that were in his legs and then to straighten out the brittle bones that were in his feet, could that man ever get up and walk? And so this man becomes a great illustration of how God has to work the cure or no one can be saved. Now that brings me to another point about the cure and that is the source of the cure is Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And I would ask you, could you see yourself in that picture? That you know how you were before you became a Christian, before you believed in Christ, how that you were lame, how that you had no power to get up and walk, that you had no interest in God? But then Jesus reached down to you and he took you by the hand and told you that you could stand and live. Salvation is in him and him alone. And so left to us to recognize the need and then to reach up and do something to help ourselves with that means that we would never be saved. And so the source of the power is not in Peter and John. They spoke in the name of Jesus. Now later on in the fourth chapter, the religious leaders were aghast at what Peter and John did. And so in their minds perished the thought that real compassion is better than pretended piety. And so they brought them in. They brought Peter and John in for questioning in Acts 4, verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power and by what name have you done this? And Peter said, Well, since you asked, be it known unto you all and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And all the people of God that were standing around listening to the answer that Peter gave said, just like family feud, good answer, good answer, because that's the best one he could give. Nobody gets saved except by Jesus. He's the only source of salvation. As he said, he's the way, the truth, and the life. Now, thirdly, we notice about it that the cure is always complete. Immediately, the man got up, and he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. Now, that tells us then, and in our picture here, our example, that salvation is instantaneous. Salvation is not a process you have to go through. When you trust Christ, you're saved immediately. There is no waiting period. Some people think that getting saved is like applying for a gun. You have a waiting period to go through. Well, there is no waiting period. There's no, no processes and steps to go through. At the moment you believe, you become a child of God and you're headed to heaven. I don't know if there's any better news that you could tell people than that. That right now, right at this moment, if you trust Christ, you can know for sure in your heart that you're on your way to heaven. You don't need four spiritual laws. You don't need a 12-step program to get to heaven. There is no self-improvement plan. It's instantaneous. And one of the really great things about our salvation is just the completeness of the cure. There is complete healing for our souls. Verse number 8 says, "...and he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God." That tells us that Christ's cure is sufficient. It is complete salvation. Nothing has to be added to this. Now, many churches want to add something to faith and say, well, here's the next step that you have to go through. Roman Catholicism has its seven sacraments, but you don't have to have seven sacraments in order to get to heaven. Others say, well, well, maybe there's not seven, but there's at least one. You have to be baptized in order to get to heaven. Salvation doesn't take baptism either. There is no list of commands that have to be kept. Salvation is complete by believing in Jesus Christ. Now, I say there's no commandments that have to be kept, but you don't want to make the mistake about this, that complete salvation gives you a desire to obey God's commandments. And if the desire doesn't change, then neither did you. When Jesus saves, it's a job that's done, a complete job, an always fully sufficient job. And with that, the last thought follows, which is the confirmation of the cure is evident. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. Nobody had to be convinced this man was healed, he jumped up, he started leaping, he started walking and praising God and everybody knew that he was healed. He praised God because God was the one that did it. Now if he had to go through a 12-step program as I mentioned a moment ago then he'd have something to say, well look what I did. Look look how I did my part and now God has done his part. And so he'd have something to brag about. But here's the thing about God and salvation. He doesn't want anybody to take any credit. He doesn't want anybody to steal his thunder, so to speak. He doesn't want anybody to take his glory. And that's why Scripture says that salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. And then note especially that his healing was confirmed by the walk and the talk. You see, salvation is known by what it does to your life. Salvation is confirmed by the things that you do. And I don't mean some bizarre thing that you do. Some people think they got saved and you see them bouncing off the walls and jumping up and down and turning flips over the chairs and everything else. And that's evidence that you're saved. It's not bizarre things that you do that are evidence of salvation. It's the ordinary things that you do. The walk, the talk, the daily activities, the way that you live your life. Jesus said, by their fruits, ye shall know them. And this is really one of the things that's so great about being a part of God's plan to bring people to him. Because when you witness to someone and that person gets saved and you see the joy and you see the change that takes place in their life, it causes you to praise God. It causes you to glorify God because you know that God is always glorified in the salvation of sinners. When a heart is turned towards him away from the world to recognize who Jesus Christ is, that's when God receives glory. And so the joy of a Christian salvation is increased by having a part of this. Now, I I would never say this next thing to you if I thought that what you would do is say, well, let's take some credit for what takes place here. I wouldn't say this if I know that you wouldn't understand very well that God uses us, as I said at the very beginning, that no one forgets the person that brought them to the Lord. God uses us. God's work is done by his disciples. I'm sure that Peter, in speaking to this man, never forgot that it was Andrew, his brother, that brought him to Jesus. Nathanael never forgot that it was Philip who brought him to Jesus. The Ethiopian eunuch... I'm sure never forgot that it was Philip the evangelist, Philip the deacon that brought him to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon never forgot that it was a Methodist layman filling in in a pulpit for a preacher who couldn't be there on the night that he was there that gave the gospel and Charles Spurgeon was saved. He never forgot that man. Now, none of us takes any credit for what Jesus does, but folks, I'll tell you this. It's a great feeling when God uses you. See, Peter and John witnessed for a miracle, and a miracle is what they got. This man received his physical healing, but more importantly than all of that, he met Jesus through the witness of these apostles. So I would have to ask you, have you been witnessing for a miracle? Do you have compassion on people, or have you neglected the duty? And I think all of us would have to say that we've neglected what we need to do, And what we really need to do is to change all of that. And we need to really become a church that witnesses many miracles of salvation. That we are the church that is the lighthouse that Erica sang about just a moment ago. The one that people can't miss because it's vibrant, because it's alive, because it's going out and telling people about our faith. And I do sincerely hope that that we are really... Considering this every day, where we are at work and wherever we are, thinking about there are people that need to know about Jesus Christ and we need to share our faith with them. This is what God's left us here to do. Let's be people that witness for the miracle of the new birth in those who need to be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and Lord, um, we know that we've all failed in our responsibilities. We know that uh, there's none of us that can say that we've done everything that we could do. No, we need to do so much more. We need to be so much more concerned about those that are around us, about people in Rona Park that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to be a church that reaches out to others, that is really, really concerned that where we are, that Jesus Christ is first and foremost on our minds, and we might be a living testimony for you every day. Bless our people. We thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Saul, so stand, please.